Ruth Messenger and Rabbi Menachem Creditor, two of my personal favorites, I have to say. So welcome to Exit Strategy. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm confident that all of our listeners are going to know who you are, but I feel compelled to do a brief intro. Ruth, you are a prominent voice on issues of social justice, gender, racial equality, and of course, the responsibility of the Jewish community to pursue positive change. You're a former political leader in New York City and a former longtime president and CEO of the American Jewish World Service. And now you are its first global ambassador. And Rabbi, you are the Pearl and Ira Meyer Scholar in Residence at UJA Federation, New York, and the founder of Rabbis Against Gun Violence. You are an acclaimed author, scholar, and speaker on such issues as social justice and diversity. So today, what are we talking about? We are talking about global grief. In theory and in reality, COVID, racial tensions, political dysfunction, war, the rise of anti-Semitism, homophobia, mass shootings, economic woes, there's more and more to discuss. But all of this generates a peculiar type of individual and collective grief that has made the functioning of us as persons and societies heavy. It's made it challenging, unnerving, and sometimes paralyzing. So Ruth and Rabbi, what does all of this look like and feel like to you? I mean, is global grief a real thing? When I hear the expression global grief, if it means like sort of everybody is weeping at the same time, no. But does grief extend beyond a loss in a particular family, which many of your podcasts deal with, and become a, a, a global phenomenon? I think absolutely. And I think we saw that in this country during the pandemic. One of my roles here is to say that we can talk about the ways in which this country was sort of thrown on tilt by the pandemic with all kinds of different kinds of grieving, loss of being able to go to your office, uh, having to homeschool your child, a thousand other examples. I just want to, and maybe we should start, Stephanie, talking there, and the rabbi should talk about that. But I want to note for the rest of the later in the conversation that to me, we have to also talk about the fact that in some ways, grief, both personal and family grief and community grief is experienced differently in different parts of the world. Not only for the obvious reason that cultures and religions are different, but because loss is a very different and more common phenomenon. Both personal loss to illness and loss in communities to war, to strife, to whatever, to whatever, just happened more. And that makes people's response to them a little different than in this country. Yeah, building on, on what Ruth just shared, the differentiation between experiences of grief is important to note, especially because, as she correctly pointed out, the country was thrown on tilt uh, or off its axis, as it were, by the pandemic. But that is actually also a selective experience by some Americans of what just happened to America. It was never actually balanced for most of us. And so recognizing that grief is an experience of loss that differs one person to the next, and that loving my neighbor should have required me to know that it wasn't okay before for them in the first place, 
means that my grief should be valid. I have my experience of loss, and as a human being in this country, I have had my experiences of loss. Those are valid, but they are not exclusive, and they are not universal. So the word global, and Ruth has taught me this actually many times through the years, global is a, a code word for I don't know everything. Global is bigger than me. That's a great point because sometimes we tend to think, oh, 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 I do know. I get it. I understand. And yet there's that big sphere out there, that big world, and we don't know. What changed in that moment that our perspective changed? Well, I'll, I'll take a stab at this first, and then I'm curious how Ruth is going to, to formulate her response too. I think that the inescapability of a pandemic, an invisible onslaught, uh, and the dislocation of literally everything and everyone, the fracturing of families that would otherwise have physically been in proximity to each other, the recognition that what seemed casual was actually miraculous. Right? For us as Americans, I read an article in The Atlantic uh, two years ago. It said, uh, admit it, you miss your commute. The inability to have a border experience to buffer between the experience of private and public meant that the immediacy of knowledge that we access through our devices, which was now our only way of accessing others, meant that everything was not only at our fingertips, was at the forefront of our brains. And for those who live lives of privilege, as I do, I choose to do the work that I do. I have time that is my discretion to use as I choose. And thank God for the circumstances of my birth, but I didn't earn most of the privilege that I inhabit. Even for me, there was no hiding from this. Standing on line for groceries suddenly made me think about food lines, and those are still privileges compared to those for whom there's no food waiting. Toilet paper, as an anxiety producer, was the shock to the sensitive parts of myself and caused me great anxiety, and I still don't know what real loss looks like, because those were temporary pauses in my access to what I need. So what catalyzed all of it for me, and I can't really answer for everybody, but is the inescapability of the change. The disruption was so visceral, immediate, and unavoidable that even those who would like to live bubbled lives of privilege couldn't, for the most part. So I think that's beautiful and exactly what I was talking about. The pandemic changed things for everybody because it was all right here. Everybody someplace in their lives has suffered a loss of a, of a relative, sometimes too early, sometimes very sad. All of a sudden, everyone knows people who got sick. Some people know people who got very sick and, and a surprisingly large number of people know someone who died from the pandemic or complications. And I want to say that I had to deal with the fact for my professional work that many people hit by the COVID phenomenon, which upset people and caused loss and then some grieving and then some anger, made people more focused on their own bubble. So I think that's what Menachem was talking about. It's like, don't tell me that there's a new outbreak of Ebola in Liberia, or don't tell me that COVID is spreading across the world. And don't tell me that whatever vaccines we have here are not yet being produced in India. I have to worry about my groceries. And so this whole question of people's perspective on the world, which I've spent a lot of time and energy trying to enlarge, was somewhat threatened by the reality of a pandemic 
even though, and I just have to mention this, even though the pandemic hit in a country that's the richest one in the world and that had the resources, we didn't always deploy them well, we didn't always deploy them fast enough, but we had all the energy and the resources here that the rest of the world still doesn't know nothing about. I'm curious, Rabbi, from a spiritual point of view, how do we find our center in all of this? And how do we not get overwhelmed? And how do we also prevent ourselves from becoming apathetic? Because we're so concerned with ourselves and what's going on in our lives. Yeah, I, I appreciate the question so much, especially because we should have always been asking it, because there's always enough and too much to worry about. The the overwhelming grief that that so many have felt, and we would do ourselves a disservice if we conjugate that at, into the past tense. We are overwhelmed. We have been overwhelmed. And we used the word at the beginning of the pandemic, essential, to talk about workers who had no choice but to be on the front lines because either... They were medical professionals who were literally saving lives as fast as they could, not as fast as those lives always needed because of the lack of resources we provided. Or we used it to describe those who had no choice but to put their physical bodies on the line because they had no choice and no way to go remote with their work. How do we keep ourselves from being apathetic? What a luxurious question. What a privileged position I am in to think about it as if I know. I'll offer what wisdom I can, but again, my bubble was a safe one for all of its anxiety. And yes, I'm very close with people who lost loved ones. But as a rabbi, I've said that many, many times. And the kind of loss that I experienced and fear that I experienced is real and deep and, speaking personally, ongoing. And I'm not powerless. The worst sin is for a person to say to themselves, I'm powerless. Today happens to be the 50th yard site of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he said, here we are, images of God, a fraction of God's infinite power at our disposal. So all I've got is a smidge of the divine. But that is so much. And if I allow myself, through conscious practice, waking up with a choice to be grateful, not with a natural occurrence of gratitude, but the choice to be grateful, to say words that are true and aspirational, and to look at the sky that I didn't make, and my neighbor, who is my obligation, and to know I can do something about it. My neighbor is a veteran of the Korean War. I didn't know his name until the pandemic. Shame on me. And I could have done something about it before the emergency began. So apathy is not a choice. Powerlessness is a lie and a sin. And so how do we try to be resilient, I think by not denying the beauty of the world and by not denying the power that each of us has to make a difference. And by tuning in to the experiences of all of these other people. So to start with the most obvious one, Menachem mentioned appropriately, the frontline workers. And on one, the one hand, you know, New York's response was amazing. People will remember every night at seven o'clock, opening your window, and yelling congratulations to the people who were out there on the front lines. And I want to say that that was extraordinary. And I want to take it a step further and say, we all could constantly have done better to imagine what life was like for those people. Because I think the instinct was, all right, thank God they're there. They're packing my groceries. They're changing bedpans in the hospital. And I owe them a debt of gratitude. And that's great. But you're asking us to reflect on issues of grief 
and panic and fear and loss. And just imagine if you were living in um, East New York and Brooklyn, and you were a nurse's assistant at Maimonides Hospital, I'm making this up, a person of color, and you knew that every night at 7 p.m. people were cheering for you. But you also knew that every day you went to work thinking that you actually might die or become ill and leave your children with no care. And I don't think that those of us who were applauding those workers and thanking them had all of that story in our minds, and I think we needed to. And, and to use and to use rab, the rabbi's tense, and still need to, because it's happening all the time. People whose stories we don't know, who the good news is we're very often there reaching out to help, addressing the problem of the pandemic around the world, addressing local problems, saying we care. But I want us to do even more to both sit and learn with and from those people and to try to understand their experience. I'll just give you one example. And it's, I don't know if it's grief or just global reality, but I'm doing a lot of work right now with the immigrants and asylum seekers at Port Authority. So I can say fantastic things, and I will, about not about the city, whose response I think is terrible, but about the not-for-profit organizations that have sprung up, about the volunteers that are staffing those not-for-profit efforts, all wonderful. And I'm down there saying to every group of volunteers who comes, it's fantastic that you're here. It's fantastic that you're helping these people get warm clothing. I need you to reflect for three minutes of your life on the fact that most of these people walked through six countries and a rainforest and a flooded out area where literally they watched the next family over lose a child on the mudslide and die. And if that doesn't say something about how much we don't understand, how much we have to learn and expand our empathy and recognize that these people who we are, at least some of us, trying to welcome to New York have experienced a level of trauma and demonstrated a capacity of resilience that, frankly, most of us can't imagine. What Ruth is saying is a, a sort of a counterintuitive way of coping with grief, which is to recognize that my grief is part of a collective experience, and I only know a fragment of it, it should not only humble me, it should also comfort me in some very strange ways and then obligate me. Because if my grief, which is real, is part of a larger grief that far surpasses my comprehension, that means I have the means to help someone else, to bear the burden of the other. Right? Jewishly, we say over and over, love your neighbor as yourself, but that means coming to know the self, acknowledge what is true about self, and by doing that kind of self-examination, trying to learn about the reality of my neighbor. I wouldn't have known these stories had Ruth not just shared them, and I won't know anything about my neighbor until I ask. And therefore, I think maybe the best way to cope with this grief, this loss, this threatened paralysis is to stoke my own curiosity, to do what both Dr. King and Rabbi Heschel called the ability to remain surprised. I'm so happy that you brought Rabbi Heschel into the conversation today. A prophet, for sure, in our world, and one we continue to learn from. Ruth, if you can look at the landscape of the social action sector right now, thinking about obligation, are you sensing any changes that are positive or negative? 
Is it holding up or is it expanding in your view? Or is grief and fatigue just seeping at it all, wearing us down? So I want to say it's for me, I, maybe you knew I was going to say this, but it's a mixed bag. On the one hand, I just looked last night in preparatory for our talking about early information from the people who study philanthropy. And it turns out that in response to COVID, American philanthropy went up. People gave some more money in their local communities. People gave some more money targeted to helping people survive the pandemic in the best possible way. So that's very encouraging that as people were dealing with their own life issues, they were caring about others. On the other hand, as I said, some of the things that are going wrong in our country, COVID, which nobody caused, but which has certainly created immense problems, anti-Semitism, which is on the rise and present, some of those things seem to me to have made people focus, and it's very hard for me to say this, of course, focus thoughtfully on their own lives and their own anxieties and their own fear and their own grief. But they have treated those sentiments as limited, as scarcity. And so they can't think about the rest of the world now because they have their own problems. And I find that to be to be sad, to be a, an expression sometimes of privilege. And that people's response to go back to your specific question is like, I can't be obligated to other people. Now I have to worry about myself. And myself might be whether I've gotten my latest booster or whether I have to cancel my flight for the fourth time or whether trying to do my work. And I don't know, Stephanie, you can comment on this, but you know that I do teaching of women who are entrepreneurs who are heads of small organizations. And I keep saying to them, it's okay. Talk about COVID craziness. Because everybody you're supervising, everything you're trying to do is affected by some combination of a COVID fog, people getting more anxious internally, people getting fearful, people having new sources of grief. We have to understand and deal with that in order to be able to deal with it well from a practical point of view, from an emotional point of view, from a spiritual point of view. I want to just take a little bit of a right turn here. Recently, David Brooks wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times, and it was called The Rising Tide of Global Sadness. And one of the things he mentioned are headlines in news outlets between the year 2000 and the year 2019. 23 million headlines were analyzed, and it was discovered that our headlines are more negative than ever before because the headlines are using such words as anger, fear, disgust, sadness. This has to have an impact on us. So as we talk about global grief, this is in many forms. And I'm curious to know from your perspective, where's community in all of this and that positive impact that we're all looking for? The article that you're referencing is fascinating for a million reasons, including the fact that he coins a phrase, emotional inequality. Toward the end of the essay, Brooks suggests, by observing and measuring this, that the top 20% of the world is experiencing the highest level of happiness and well-being since they started measuring such things. And the bottom 20% is experiencing the worst. And I think he's minimizing the bottom and saying the 20% of the top is also 
too many people included in the joy. I think that the place of community is a really important question for us to be facing right now, because ultimately community doesn't look like one thing. Some of us have migrated to a visceral experience of community online in regular ritual ways, which is incredibly powerful, sometimes surprising, and real, even, even visceral, to feel friends reaching through a screen, to meet eyes, what the French-Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas described as the hardest thing and the most important thing a person can do, which is to look someone else in the eyes. Zoom has forced us into that mitzvah, thank God, and unfortunately. But the intimacy can be real, and the notion of obligation is only enhanced when I look someone else in the eyes. That builds community in ways our ancestors never could have fathomed. But the physical showing up is a question mark in almost every sector I've measured, both for corporate and for nonprofit, for houses of worship. I've spoke with clergy members across the board, and everyone is struggling to show up. But what is also important to recognize is that in all of those places, especially houses of faith, most of the membership of any of those houses of faith never showed up anyway. It's just that we're noticing it now. Right. And so our sense of obligation, here's what I would offer. It might be a slightly too rabbinic way of answering the question. But you're a rabbi. That's okay. I can't help it. It's in, it's in the blood. Ask my sister. <laughs> there are strains of Jewish communal organizing and philosophy in history. And at one point, the bifurcation was between people called chassids and people who were called not chassids, right? Mitnagdim, opponents. So once upon a time, a chassid and a mitnaged were walking down the street, and they saw a stagecoach driver who was fixing their, the wheel of their stagecoach, which had become stuck in the mud. As they passed by, they heard the stagecoach driver praying, singing the words of the Shema. And the mitnaged, who was known for punctilious observance, saw what was happening, looked up to heaven, and said, Oh, God, I can't believe your children. They don't even wash their hands when they talk to you. The chassid, who was of a more emotional, what we would today call a spiritual mindset, noticed the same thing, heard what his friend had said, looked up at heaven, and said, God, you are so lucky. Even when your children's hands are dirty, they remember to sing to you. And so even though your question and Brooks's measurements are real, that community is threatened in the way that we understand it today with dire implications for communal welfare, we still care about each other. And we are still showing up in new and familiar ways. And people still have a sense of obligation despite it all. Isn't that a miracle to notice? Right. And that fits with what I said, is that it turned out that giving had actually gone up, that people were thinking about new ways to give and new ways to respond. I think there are rabbis who are owning this whole notion of like everybody needs, which goes directly to your, your theme, Stephanie, everybody needs grief counseling. They may not be talking about it that way. They may not be saying why they're showing up. They may not be admitting that it's more fun to go to Shabbat services in your pajamas with a good bagel. I mean, I always read in synagogue even before, so I'm not, I'm not doing anything new. But as people show up, they're partly showing up because they don't know what it is they need. And Menachem was talking about a sense of community. I agree. But I'm also saying that people realize or don't realize in co realization, they need some solace. 
Oh, it's not just community. They need a faith leader who will say, it's okay that you're feeling stressed and strained by different things. It's okay that even though whatever the horrible number it is that people have died from this pandemic, you're obsessed with the fact that, you know, your life has been disrupted in other ways. It may seem mild compared to the global impact, but it's very real for you. And we need spiritual leaders who will acknowledge that and help people deal with a grief that they may not even realize is what they're feeling. I do believe that self-care and the power of community are built into the Jewish process of grief. After a death, as you both know, and and the ritual and, and the purpose of healing that takes place is so important. Is that applicable in a more collective way for enabling us to move on if there is such a thing? I think absolutely. You know, yes. as, as you well know, Stephanie, the, the way that Jewish tradition guides us as we lose and as we grieve, it's among the best and most rich part of Jewish wisdom. And we have seen very few but very significant communal markings of the pandemic, some of them taking Jewish forms, some of them taking national form. There's not been enough acknowledgement, and people seem ready to put it way behind us without the important markings that ritual offer. But for instance, I remember, and I'm assuming almost everyone will, the moment at the reflective pool in D.C. when almost President Biden stood there with solemnity, with simplicity, and that kind of quiet grief that hadn't been named, actually. Maybe it couldn't have been named, maybe it wasn't named, but no one had named it for the nation. And it finally said something about how hard this has been We at UJA tried to have a one-year commemoration with voices of children brought together with digital engineering and and my wife, Neshama, doing some beautiful singing and rabbis and frontline workers acknowledging their worlds. But for instance, Shiva gives me the sense of the immediate, but even before that, Kriya, let me rip something. And, And I'm getting emotional feeling this in my body as we even just name it. Something has been torn Something has been lost. Shiva says, sit down and feel. Let the community show up. Shloshim, the 30 days after, is another period of time, which the basic meaning of it for me is, it's not Shiva. I don't know what this is, but it's not Shiva. And having just lost my grandmother a year and a month ago, that first year is a thing. And the final Kaddish that we, my family, met online to say, was incredibly significant and important just to tell me that time has been moving and we have kept each other's hearts as whole as we can. It doesn't end grief to have rituals, but it it names the time in which grief comes and goes as it will. So I think not only is it applicable, it's necessary and it's been woefully absent. And we know that these rituals provide a framework for us as we're walking through this picture of grief? It's a framework and it's a permission. You asked when we were talking a a few weeks ago about this presentation, if the community was doing enough. And I think Menachem just given some examples, but I think there's always more to be done. And this is a moment for doing more. This is a moment because of COVID and we don't know if we're post-COVID yet or not. But we all know that we've lost things, and this is something to be talked about and to create. And Menachem has done this often in his life, 
to create some new rituals and structures for. And I, on the other side of this, would love to see me or some me with some help creating some new rituals and structures for are thinking about people elsewhere in the world. And that's how I'm responding to this immigrant crisis is like, if I'm there, you're not allowed to come and help collect clothing for the immigrants until I ask you to reflect on who they are and what they've lived with and what trauma they're experiencing and what resilience they must have. We have gained some perspective over these years, hopefully. This is a moment where we, I believe, have an obligation to the community to make a statement about how we want to live and go forth. And which rabbi I will give you, because I always give a rabbi the opportunity to have a closing thought. <laughs> so um, up to you uh, to usher us out of this most important and sacred conversation. And uh, it's an honor to be here with the two of you and to pray that the community of listeners is also a community of resilient actors, knowing that agency is universal, that we have power that we haven't tapped into yet, despite all of the exhaustion we might be feeling. That grief is not a welcome visitor, but there's no denying its presence. And it will come and it will go, and then it'll come again. But we have to remain constant to each other. And I think that Jewish tradition gives us enormous capacity to live fiercely in the world. Abraham Joshua Heschel, who I remember very dearly today, having never met him, but regarding him as a Rebbe in my life, taught that prayer is actually what the substance of a mitzvah is. A commandment, when fulfilled, is a prayer through deed. Everything we do for someone else, especially given the kind of work, Stephanie, that you lead us to do in the world, chesed shalemet, an act I do through love that I can never expect to be repaid for, that is the highest form of prayer. And I would just bless us to be prayerful, regardless of our beliefs, prayerful about what we can do to help somebody else today. Rabbi Menachem Creditor and Ruth Messenger, thank you so much for your words and your inspiration. A true honor to be here with you today. Thank you. Thanks, thank Stephanie. you, Stephanie. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation. I urge you to visit our show notes and there's an email listed there. So if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you find your podcast, we will renew our conversation with another topic. And I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy.